0: This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the Beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion.
1: As the finishing touches are put on the new government, what can business expect? To discuss, let's bring in NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So, Brent, should businesses have high expectations?
2: Yeah, well, I think businesses do have high expectations. I think they've heard enough from the parties that are going to make that are making up the government, but particularly from National and ACT, that you know there's going to be a change, um, and that it's going to be a much more business-friendly government than what they might have regarded the the outgoing government as. And so, yeah, so that in that sense, you know, there will be high expectations. And it, It's going to be interesting to see, from a business perspective at least, whether the government will meet all of those.
1: What are the main policy areas, do you think? Oh,
2: you know, look, there are a lot. But, I mean, obviously, you know, first up you think of employment law where this government will scrap fair pay agreements, uh, bring back um, 90-day employment trials for for all employers. So there'll be quite a lot of, you know, relatively significant change in employment law. Um, It is going to be pro-development. It's, you know, signalled that it's going to make it easier for mineral extraction to go ahead, um, you know, including on the conservation estate. Um, you know, there seems to be signs that, for instance, also, you know, that it will allow for further exploration of natural gas mm. and oil mm. maybe. Um, you know, there's a sense it might want to provide the opportunity. For instance, tidy Energy has this plan to build a gas-fired power station. Uh, it's got the consent for it, but it isn't confident about investing under the Outgoing government's regime, which was to stop natural gas use by 2030. National, I think, will see natural gas as a transition fuel, be much more supportive of it. Um, Then, obviously, overall regulation. You've got um, David Seymour, you know, particularly the act leader, but who will perform part of this government promising to cut regulation, but that's also in line with National's policy. Um, So, you know, across the board, there should be, from a business perspective, um, changes that they will see as positive.
1: Will those changes resonate with everyone?
2: Uh, yeah, no, not likely resonate with everyone. I mean, if you're a, a an employee in a an industry which is low paid and relatively vulnerable um, and hoping that maybe a fair pay agreement might have delivered you a, a, a better outcome in terms of both pay and working conditions, well, you know, that's you're going to lose that opportunity, um, and and I guess overall, wh- one of the big things will be is whether uh, the benefits for business will flow on into to broader benefits for um, society and particularly for those you know wage earners in terms of you know Nationals talking about raising incomes, but it's going to put a cap, for instance, on also raising the minimum wage in the way that the outgoing government has. But so, but will it boosting business, deliver those higher wages for workers so that by, say, three years from now, they feel better off. And, and that, that'll be the big question, I guess, when you come to the next election. You know, business might be feeling pretty good, but, you know, will will other voters, workers and others be feeling better off as well? That, that'll be a big question.
1: There's still a lot to happen, though, before National can hit the r- ground running.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is still a lot to happen. And, of course, you've got Christmas, New Year Mm. break getting in the way. So uh, while it's got its 100 days of action, um, then, you know, you you would expect fairly quickly it'll announce and repeal, for for instance, fair pay agreements, that sort of thing. It can perhaps get that done relatively quickly. But, But some of that other stuff, I mean... You know, going through regulation and scrapping off what they see as um, irrelevant regulation and the like. I mean, that is going to take longer. So there, there will be you know a, a time lag between um, some of what they've announced actually you know going ahead and happening. And of course, we we still don't know the full details yet mm-hmm. of the coalition agreement. To be clear about what's going to be given priority.
1: But there are high expectations from the public.
2: Oh, look, yeah, as I say, high expectations from business around that, but actually Mm. you're right, there are high expectations from the public, not really around any specific policy agenda per se, but around the sense that National, and particularly the leader, the the incoming Prime Minister, um, Christopher Luxon, kept on saying, we can get things done, we'll fix it will make things better. So so there is a real expectation, I think, from the public voters, oh, things are going to get better. So, you know, and as I say, you know, three years from now, I guess voters will look and think, am I better off? Have things got better? And and, and that will determine, I guess, the way they vote in the next election.
1: Is the reality going to be different for Luxon when he walks in these doors?
2: Um, Well, the reality, I think, will be different in the sense that once he is firmly in the, on the ninth mm. floor, mm. you know, he might find that some of the things, you know, he's kind of hinted at, oh, you know, when he was a chief executive, he could call someone and say, get that done, and it was done tomorrow. Um, with the wheels of government, it doesn't quite work that way, um, partly because the wheels of government can be slow, but they're slow sometimes for a reason. You know, this, this is a democracy that he's now running in a, in a country, a government, not a not a private company. So there is a difference, and you know, he might learn what that difference is over the next few months.
1: Realistically, what could it be achieved by the end of the year?
2: By the end of this
1: year? Mm.
2: Well, not a lot. I mean, it's only a couple of weeks. You know, They're going to have a couple of weeks of parliament, so mm. there's not a lot they can do in the next couple of weeks, you know, maybe scrap fair pay agreements. but um, and, and the danger is if they rush and do too much too quickly, they'll get things wrong and have to come back and fix it later. I mean, they're better off to actually take a very measured approach so that they make sure they they get it right.
1: Bring it thank you.
0: Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz.
2: Infrastructure New Zealand has given the incoming government a clear message it needs to engage in a more positive partnership with local government. I'm joined by its chief executive, Nick Leggett. Now, you're particularly keen on ensuring that the government engages in these city and regional partnerships. Why is that so important?
3: I think there needs to be a rebalancing of the relationship between central and local government in New Zealand. We're a highly centralised country, which is a bit odd when you think about how long and slim we are, despite the fact we've got quite small a small population. But what we know is that New Zealand uh, does value the difference and the diversity of its regional areas. And um, over the uh, last few decades, local government's uh, mandate has continued to expand. But unfortunately, the funding hasn't followed. So, you know, ten percent of uh, the, the total tax take—if you think about local and central government taxes—but ten percent of the spend happens at local government, ninety percent at central government. There is an imbalance. Uh, communities are increasingly under pressure, and we're seeing that with the projected rates rises from around the country, as well as uh, the requirements to lift investment in three water assets. Um, but. Uh, you know, the, the central government has a chance here to look at what has successfully happened in Australia and the UK, where devolving power back to communities, agreeing on a plan and co delivering. And you would include iwi and in the private sector in that as well, we think. There's a real chance to set a long term plan for different regions and cities across the country that builds the social and economic and environmental futures of those areas. And that is, you know, that'll be centred on infrastructure. But um, it's also about saying to, you know, different parts of the country, well, you've got actually a better idea about what it is you want to look like and how you want to grow. Let's use the new Spatial Planning Act to set that at a really high level. And then let's group the functions that are required to make that happen. At the moment... If you think about, you know, councils are generally responsible for land use, for where development happens and how it happens. Uh, unfortunately, they, they often, that's a cost to them once things are actually built. But if you could group that alongside transport, which is really held generally more by central government, if you think about Waka Kotahi, the transport agency, you could put some of those functions together in a region and say, actually, instead of just letting you rely on the rate to income once you build some new housings or, or there's some commercial development, you'd say, well, we might actually give you a share of the uplift and the value of that land by way of a, an annual levy to help fund the infrastructure that's required to, the, to meet the development? Can, can I kind of interrupt? Because
2: the National Party... I mean, has a policy around these regional city plans. I mean, ACT has a policy around sharing GST. I think New Zealand First has a policy too, which seems to indicate more support for local government. So based on your expectations, what you think should happen, are you confident that this new government is going to do that?
3: Well, I think we're confident that they they are thinking in the right areas, uh, but... The what we're not so confident about is that they have got much beyond below the bonnet, um, in terms of understanding the long term, and we're talking 10 to 15 year horizons for these plans. These are not just the opportunity to dump a, a sort of a project wish list into a part of the country and say you've done a, a city or a regional plan. This is about long term devolvement. Of responsibility and true partnership between central and local government Um, it's about giving local government as representatives of local communities uh, a a broader say in the resources that are spent in those areas and that the way they grow and change because if you believe that local knows best and I think most of us generally think that but actually we should go a step further in this country and trust local uh, as 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 good you know, sensible partners who are properly funded, um, then I think we can do a lot more. We can see a lot, we could realise a lot more aspiration for cities and regions um, than we're currently.
2: Struggling New Zealanders are still struggling to access online government services. To talk about that, I'm joined by New Zealand country manager for Technology One, John Mazinier. So the, the report you've had done shows that those, um, obviously in lower income struggling, people from perhaps uh, minority groups um, struggle, still struggle in comparison to those on higher incomes to access um, online services, despite obviously the, the fact that connectivity is so much better now. What's the main reason for that?
4: Thanks, Brent. Um look the, the the rationale firstly behind our research was very much to look at the experience and the interaction of digital citizens as they utilize online services from central and local government um that uh, that quite frankly were were quite startling to us and it was more about not so much the the ability to to access because we've we've had the the gradual introduction of fibre throughout the country. So the enablement of access is not the issue. One of the startling facts is the actual services that are being provided and how they are being provided are actually complex and complicated, and they are actually what are causing some of the disengagement of the very people that are looking for the services in need or entitlement.
2: I mean, the report talks about the need for more empathy what 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 does that mean what does empathy look like
4: i suppose if 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 we look at the services that both central and and local government have traditionally provided and commenced putting online it's been very much focused around efficiency gains and so having achieved that the difficulty is now in how people access and utilize those services so we don't view the, um, the provision of those services a cost or efficiency equation. It's now a, a far more citizen-centric view. Um, but you've got to have the core foundations of your infrastructure, of your enabling IT as part of a um, an enablement. Now, I'll give you an example. The, the The nature of local government has changed. Previously, we've had a very property centric view of how we manage our local government um, citizens, if you like, or entities, that's changed. And that's shifted to a far more citizen centric view as a citizen no longer just has a property, they may actually have waste or bin services. They may have a dog and registration requirements. They may have a commercial business on their own right. And in fact, they may even be doing renovations. So all of a sudden, there are multiple services that the individual is now actually interacting with, with one entity being the council. The council's now got to be cognisant of how it interacts and how it relates back to that citizen.
2: I think from what the report's saying, what councils and central government should be doing is providing services that suit the user rather than suits the institution. Is that...
4: That's exactly right, Brent. That's exactly right. So, as opposed to looking at a property, read really my previous example, it's what other services is that particular individual now actually using, utilizing, and absorbing from our institution? And that's the same, obviously, for central government as well. Local government, a bit more complex. Um, it is over 150 different processes. So, so, there is a lot more intimacy required um, and a lot more complexity as a result of that.
2: I think it also talks about the need for providing more human support and providing it perhaps more quickly than people. But I guess one of the whole things about online is organisations want to actually try and remove that person-to-person connection as much as possible. How how do you balance that?
4: Look, I I think it's a difficult one. However, a lot of it can actually be, I suppose, termed human-centric design. So putting the individual at the heart of it as opposed to the service. So, traditionally, it's been seen as a transaction. We're doing you a favor, it is online, and, and we're pushing the nature of that um, transaction be it a, um, a request for information or a search for an entitlement for a grant or a benefit or, or indeed a, an application um, and putting that in terms that is far more easily absorbed by the individual. And also taking note that it's not so much online as being on a computer or on a screen, what's becoming far more pervasive, and I suppose far more a point to take into consideration when designing those services, is the mobile is now pervasive. Not everybody necessarily has a PC at home, and use old terminology, but mostly everybody has got a mobile device.
2: Are there any lessons, I mean, I know this um, study has looked at central government, local government engagement, but there are, are there lessons from this if you like for, um, you know, private business. I mean, you know, personally, I'd have to say I can certainly think of times I've gone onto websites, what have you, trying to engage the business and found it difficult. So, do you, do you think this this goes across the private sector as well?
4: Uh, Brent, look, I think it's a really good point. Um, there are a multitude of industries that are looking to push either cost out of their business by becoming online and and putting less, I suppose frontline services at the disposal of the community. I suppose some of the highlights that have been brought to bear here, certainly in a central and local government context that are very much about provision of service to a broad spectrum of our community. Um, we, we need to be very cognizant, very cognizant of of how we present those services and quite frankly, how how we distribute them.
2: So what, what role can, your business play in this, do you, in terms of making it more accessible.
4: Oh, look! I mean, fr- from our perspective, um, technology one is, is 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 only one party, and and it's broader than just a a business that I represent. This is about how do we better provide services and access to those services, and and functions that our community needs. Um, We're obviously interested and committed to the research because it helps us seek to understand a sentiment, but it also reinforces observations and ultimately will lend itself into where our product and research and development may go. And that's something quite frankly, that a multitude of different organisations can learn from and the deep-seating findings and insights in the study itself actually don't preclude any other organisation tapping into those findings.
0: NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. This is behind Banter, where a little boy waits. He waits in anticipation of a job he's dreamed of since a child. And no, I'm, I'm not talking about Brent Edwards wanting to sit in my chair, although that would fulfil a lifelong dream of his. No, I'm talking about the role that Nicola Willis doesn't want, Deputy PM of the country. So Brent Edwards, what to do? What do we do here, Brent? Do we give it to someone who has the bigger number of MPs and because they say that's why it should be theirs? Or do you go for experience, Brent? You know, for someone who's been there before, who likes the feel of the leather that goes in the PM's or Deputy PM's chair, like the significance of it. And, of course, this person also says, just give it to me. Winston or the other one? What do you do, Brent?
2: Well, obviously, that's been the problem facing uh, Christopher Luxon this week. And, you know, as we speak, we know a deal's been done, but we just don't know what it is yet because it hasn't been announced. But, um, you know, you'd have to think that David Seymour has a point about being the larger party, but ACT isn't that much bigger than New Zealand First. You know, if they were kind of double the size, there wouldn't be a debate, I think. Um, But on the basis of, you know, probably Winston Peters would argue his greater experience, the fact he has been Deputy Prime Minister twice before, um, you know, but are they going to completely argue over the Baubles of power, and, and well, well, they and, are. And David Seymour has made the point <laughs> lots of times. All he's interested in is policy outcomes. So, you would have thought that that one could well, have and been, that that one could have been smoothed away pretty easily. Why
0: they, Here's an idea. Why don't they give them one of those almost Christmas, one those Christmas crackers, and they both take an in and pull, and whoever wins the prize is it? Well, well that could work. I mean, yeah, I mean, the real question, of course, Brent, is who cares? Uh, because. Christopher Luxon pointed out, did he not, this week, the deputy PM is really nothing more than a ceremonial role. Now, does he really believe that? Or does he need more time in politics to get a real understanding of what that job entails?
2: Well, if, you know, saying it and whether he believes it or not, it's kind of a naive position to take. I mean, he needs to read the Cabinet Manual, which he says he's going to have all of his ministers read and adhere (laughs) adhere to. Because in the Cabinet Manual, it clearly spells out um, the deputy prime minister's role. And, And yes... When the prime minister is there, there's not a lot for the deputy prime minister to do as deputy prime minister. But but their role is is when the deputy prime minister is out of the country, or otherwise incapacitated, yep. they become acting prime minister. And and Winston Peters will remember this well because you know back in 2018, when Jacinda Ardern, the then prime minister, took six weeks maternity leave. Yes. Winston Peters was prime minister for those six weeks, well, acting prime minister. I mean, I th- think there was some the odd phone call to Jacinda Ardern, but he was largely running the country. So, so it, it carries more than ceremonial clout. There is clout to it, and I mean, the other thing is too that um, in the, in Parliament, the prime minister this tradition has developed is the prime minister's there on the Tuesday and Wednesday, and then they go out and visit places yep. around the country on the Thursday. So on the Thursday it's generally always the deputy prime minister who then is sitting in the seat as prime minister answering the questions on behalf of the prime minister so so there is a reasonable workload to it and and they're also you'd think working very closely with the prime minister senior person you know discussing being advi- advising the prime minister and what have you So, important position, but at the same time, whoever is the Deputy Prime Minister, you would expect the other leader of the other party in the coalition to also have that very, very close connection and relationship with Christopher Luxon.
0: Well, there's been some talk about whoever doesn't get it is a loser. Uh, So, can you have two Deputy PMs? And B, if you do, that would cause all sorts of problems anyway, wouldn't it? Do you have have like a year and a half each? Do you have a week about? What do you do? That's silly. That's silly. That's is a silly a, idea. So, we leave it there.
2: Why did you even suggest it?
0: Well, I didn't suggest it. Others suggested it.
2: Well, I've suggested that maybe could I just occasionally sit in your chair as an No, but the answer is no. No, you said no. That's right? I know yeah, how to and, negotiate. And that, the that I, no, that idea you put up just then is just yeah, silly.
0: Anywho, <laughs> <You. laughs> uh, talk, smork, talk. Final stages, smork. Strong, stable government. Bore. Very close. Snore. Ate too much Weepix. Uh Either way. As Chris Bishop has pointed out Now he's the man by the way That was going to Auckland for one night For coalition talks but stayed for three And had to come home because he needed another shirt In fact he was wearing one of Chris's shirts Like they used to sing remember Brent At the Basin Reserve On those Boxing Day tests Chris's shirt, Chris's shirt Remember those days?
2: No it was Christmas shirt
0: Yeah all right. Now Chris Bishop he said No matter what Parliament won't be sitting next week
2: which means they've only got three weeks until Christmas, until Christmas is assured. Um, and the first week of that will be the opening of Parliament, the speech from the throne. And then I think there's about a 19-hour debate in response. To spe- so yeah. all of the first week and props into the second week will be yeah. taken up with that before they get on to actual business of Parliament.
0: Right. Although, as we've talked Is that Christmas week or is that the one before? No, no,
2: the one before. So so it'll leave them, you know, maybe five, six days, sitting sitting days to actually do stuff. Although I think they're signalling that they'll go into urgency so they'll be sitting early in the morning, nine o'clock starts, going till midnight, that kind of thing to try and get. But the other thing is, well, how much will they be able to do anyway? Because... You know, well, Nicholas look, said
0: definitely that there is going to be a mini budget. So, is it going to be a mini mini budget, or is it just going to be a mini budget?
2: Well, that's that. That's going to be interesting because they haven't got a lot of time to go over to the Treasury no, and say we want a mini budget this. on this. No,
0: exactly. I, uh, Give me some of the posts you think that some of the mighty part, minor party MPs might get.
2: Well, I think there seems to be a fairly clear signal that Winston Peters, aside from possibly being the deputy prime yeah. minister, um, foreign minister, foreign affairs minister. but um,
0: well, to be fair. He was a pretty good one last time.
2: Yeah, yeah, and um, he, he was, and he was foreign affairs minister too in the Helen Clark yeah. led government. Um, and then also, the but doesn't he that, want
0: Attorney General as well?
2: That's been um, that's been suggested um, in in the media. Uh,
0: Luxon wouldn't but, want to give that up.
2: Well, it's a pretty, it's a, it's actually a quite an important role, I suppose, constitutionally more. So, yeah, and. Also, I'd, I mean, while Peters might have a, a, a view that he wants it, if he's Foreign Affairs Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, and he's leader of his own party and wanting to keep that commission yeah. going, you sort of think he'd be Workload. best... Workload. Yeah, without he, he's it. He's not young. Yeah. and But on to other... Shane Jones uh, will take up some sort of economic development role, particularly around regional economic development. Yep. Um, you know, kind of they've got this policy that's the... Successor of the provincial growth fund it yeah. appears as though there will be some regional sort of infrastructure. Fund I wonder if there would be
0: as part this of this time. Uh, anyone taking notes of what they have actually done?
2: Well, you know, they <laughs> they did actually get a reasonable amount done, and if, and and the, the regions actually did actually <laughs> prosper. In that sense, there was a reasonable amount of. Not a lot of accountability,
0: analysis. was there?
2: Well, that was some of the arguments, but there have, there have been quite a lot, there were a lot of initiatives put in place. So, um, you know, people can argue. And if you remember rightly, too, in the end, I think it was about, you know, $500, $600 million ended up being taken out of that fund and yep. was used as part of the COVID Go. response. Yep.
0: What about Ag Minister?
2: Yeah, well, look, uh, that's interesting. I mean, I've heard from some talk in in, in the farming sector that um, new ACT MP um, Andrew Hoggard, former president former of, of Fe- Federal, Federal Farmers. Farmers, could be the agricultural minister, which would, apparently, hmm. so people say, is one of the sticking points that have has sort of held up.
0: Well, the farming sector would be happy, wouldn't they?
2: Well, they presumably would. He'd be well known to them, but apparently, I think New Zealand First aren't so happy with that idea. And you do wonder why the National Party would give away that particular post. You know, given you want to say that you're the party, the rural party, the party of farmers, and you and you'd you'd give away that particular. Um, more likely, I would have thought that you'd have your own National Party MP as the agricultural minister, and maybe have an associate. Um, from, from ACT.
0: But, yeah, that's going to be an interesting
2: one. But clearly ACT had, you know, they would attracted Andrew Hoggard in, put him up as a candidate and it, I think yeah. it was it was more, probably with more reason than just to have him in Parliament.
0: Well, it's happened before. I mean, a doctor into, you know, yeah. health minister.
2: Yeah, I mean, Stephen Joyce came straight into yeah. Parliament and was a very, very yeah. senior minister.
0: True. Now, look, this non-government also means, of course, that the current government, you know, the one that Labour ran, the caretakers, really have to ask if it's OK to do certain things. So what happens when they want something the net say, no, in theory, nothing, but not if you're Labour. And you want a statement put out calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. So, you do it anyway, just under the Labour banner and not the government banner. It's a bit like Labour tax policy was not to be confused with the Labour government tax policy in the run-up to the election. Now, I'm not going into the rights or wrongs of the statement, but clearly a break of tradition.
2: Um, a little bit unusual, but it's but it's something that can be done, because, and Chris Hipkins was very clear. He wasn't speaking as the caretaker Prime Minister. He was speaking as Labour leader. And they did it pretty properly, went over into the Labour caucus room to make the announcement, not, for instance, in the Beehive Theatre where you'd expect the Prime Minister. I mean... Clearly, I would say that, you know, the Labor Party had been coming under pressure. And, and you can see there's, there's growing public disquiet with what's yep. happening in Gaza with the ongoing Israeli bombardment and the rising death toll, particularly among children. Yep. Um, and that is causing, you know, not unexpectedly a huge amount of um, concern and, and anger. And so I would think that Chris Hipkins and other senior Labor um people would have got a clear message from the Labour Party membership that they expected the Labour Party to put out a stronger statement. So that's why they very, did it
0: as opposed to the other And be
2: clear. And, but I Internal think, pressure. But but Hipkins had also said that they had tried to raise this with National for the government to make a statement of the sort, but the National had said no. They but stuck, that's their prerogative. They stuck with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs' advice, which was to be a bit more, well, you can say diplomatic, but basically to stick with what... New Zealand's traditional allies were saying. And yes, it's
0: interesting because I saw an interview with Nanaia Mahuta talking about, you know, tweets that went out, you know, re-Gaza, and she ignored the official advice that yeah. they got, citing she had other advice but wouldn't say what it was. Yeah. So, you know, when you want to use that excuse, it's fine, but when you don't, it's fine.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, uh, you know, back to the caretaker convention. I mean, I I guess um, Chris Hipkins did stick to the caretaker convention because as Prime Minister, he stuck with that line. Yeah. But he stepped outside and said, look, as Labour leaders. And that has happened at different times in governments where sometimes um, a Prime Minister will make a statement as the party leader on something, but not not as Prime Minister. Yeah,
0: all right. Well, that is B.I. banter. Now, surely, surely, by this time next week, the wheat bicks will all have been eaten. Humble pie crumbs have been swept in the bin and we can finally get some proper pomp and ceremony in this building. We miss the 2pm bing bong bells signalling time for all the good little MPs to stop what they're doing and head back to class. We miss the debates, we miss the leaks, the chatter, the heads popping around the door asking whether we want to interview them. Even though we know if we say yes, they'll sit down and still basically have nothing to say. Do you miss it Brent?
2: Well, we have still been getting the leaks, remember.
0: Oh, that's very true. We have been getting the leaks. (laughs) Anyway, we know that you miss it all too. But again, we'll see you next time. And again, we appreciate you taking the time. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive.
3: Thanks for listening.